Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. People with diabetes need to watch their blood sugar levels, but there is so much more. It's not just the sweets, the three-legged stool of diabetes. Tonight on Call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. I'm Deb Johnston, your Prairie Doc this evening. There are many options for treating diabetes. Success in dealing with the disease often involves a variety of choices. But first, a look at this week's Prairie Doc quiz question. It's a true or false question tonight. A hemoglobin A1C level measures the average blood sugar level over a three-day period. True or false? Viewers who call in the correct answer will be entered into a drawing to win a copy of the book, The Picture of Health. Each of Dr. Holmes' essays, originally written for On Call with the Prairie Doc, comes with a wonderful accompanying photograph by Dr. Judith Peterson. We will announce the answer and the winner at the end of the show. Remember, you only have 10 minutes to get your answer in. We answer your questions about the disease of diabetes as they are called in or sent to us via Facebook or email. Call in questions to 1-888-376-6225 or send us an email to the address on the screen. And joining us tonight in the studio is Dr. Richard Crawford with Avera Medical Group Endocrinology and Diabetes in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And remotely via Zoom is Dr. John Palmer with Monument Health Rapid City Clinic, Rapid City, South Dakota. Welcome, gentlemen. It's just great to have you both here with us tonight. I think Thank this you. is going to be a fantastic conversation. We're going to have a lot of things to teach our viewers about. So uh, I'm going to start with you, Rich. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Right. So I'm an adult endocrinologist. I'm based at Avera in Sioux Falls, and I've been in practice for over 20 years. I was in Chicago and moved to South Dakota, where my wife has roots, and have been here now for about eight years, and a busy practice, and have just you know seen a variety of different endocrine patients. But you know, diabetes is really, you know, for better or worse, exploded. But the good news is we have so many new treatments and so many things to offer. And it's what I love to do. Fabulous. And how about you, John? Tell us about your background. Well, I'm originally from South Dakota. I grew up in Rapid City and then uh, moved away to Missouri for a while. And I've been practicing now back in South Dakota since 2009. I've been both in Rapid City and Sioux Falls and now back with Monument Health now for the last two and a half years. And I know Richard well from my time in, uh, in Sioux Falls. Um, you know, diabetes has always been a passion of mine. It's uh, why I went into endocrinology. Um, there's so much we can do to help our patients with diabetes. And as Richard talked about, we've got so many options now to treat diabetes. And even though it's such a daunting disease, you know, it really is a a very worthwhile and, and I think an incredibly gratifying thing to take care of when you really see patients um, meeting their goals. And 
you know, it's just we've seen such an explosion of therapeutic options, uh, whether it be insulin pumps, sensors, medications. Uh, it really is an exciting time, and, and, and I really uh, enjoy it uh, every single day. Fabulous. You guys are both in the right field. I can hear your passion and your excitement about it. Rich, I'm going to start with you. You've, you've been in practice a little bit longer. What do you think the biggest change, the biggest advancement in diabetes care has been since you started practicing? Oh, that, that is a tough question because <laughs> there, just, so there have been many. so many and so many that are you know, currently happening now. But I think you know, when I started um, uh, back in med school, there was one type of pill, um, something called a sulfonylurea gliburide, um, glipizide, and metformin was actually fairly new, although it had been out in Europe. The FDA was a little bit slower to get it here in the U.S., but now we've got three or four additional types. You've got the SGLT2 inhibitors. You've got GLP-1 receptor agonists, these non-insulin injectables. We've got so many better insulin analogs. We've got, as John said, we've got pumps. We've got sensors. There's just so many great tools that we have, and you can really help individualize it towards your patient, what's best for them. Sometimes costs are a factor, sometimes depending on what other medical problems they have, but it's just, it just um, it's really been so many advances in terms of technology for monitoring and, and medications as well. John, what do you have to add? What do you think is, is really exciting in diabetes care? Well, I would certainly agree with everything Richard said as well. You know, I, I take it from a personal experience. Um, you know, I grew up uh, today, uh, my best friend uh, was type one diabetic growing up as a kid. You know, seeing what he went through, you know, when we were kids, um, seeing how it was a struggle. You know, he, he really had to adjust his lifestyle around his diabetes. And now when I look at things 25, 30 years later, and we now have these pumps and these sensors the, where patients used to you know, get their blood checked every three months. Now they have their devices right in their phone that are telling them what their blood sugar is uh, whenever they want it. And to see how much more that his lifestyle can not be impacted by diabetes. He can have a, a more quote, normal lifestyle you know, that, that, um, that the rest of us have without diabetes. And, and just to see that meteoric change and the ability to, to sense blood sugars, uh, to deliver insulin in a much more effective way, it's totally changed the lives of patients with diabetes. And that's so exciting to see. And you know, it, it's even more gratifying when you see it in somebody you care about and, and, and see how well they've done as a result of this technology firsthand. Yeah, when I, when I started medical school, we had uh, NPH and R, and most of the patients were on an NPH insulin, which you'd take in the morning, and then it would it would hopefully help your blood sugar at supper time, and you'd take that R in the morning, and it would hopefully help your sugar at at lunchtime, but that meant that you had to decide when you were going to eat before you gave your sugar, and you had to decide what you were going to eat in the morning when you took your insulin, and boy, talk about a rigid a rigid life that nobody can do effectively, I don't think. So it's just been a huge explosion and changes. Yeah, with a lot more flexibility, care. you know, and like I say, it, it's something that, you know, they hear the word diabetes and some people get very depressed about it, but it isn't, it's not a death sentence. It's something that you can live with and you can live well with and healthy with. And there's so many good options for you. Yes, and so many different new medications that just make all the difference in right. the world for right. people. So yeah. um, 
Tell me a little bit about about the pumps. How do the pumps work, Rich? Right, so the pumps are primarily for type 1 diabetes. So these are people that we used to call it juvenile onset diabetes or type 1 diabetes, an autoimmune diabetes where they don't have insulin in the pancreas. And so when you have that, you need both insulin, which is your background insulin that you need even when you're not eating, and then you need insulin in response to a meal. And so a pump is something that's worn externally. Um, you, you insert it, let's say, every three days, and it's got a tubing and it goes to a device and the device has a reservoir of insulin and then the computer will slowly give a little bit of insulin over that 24 hours. We call it basal insulin and you can adjust, you know, so let's say you need more insulin from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. We can give more insulin then. Let's say you need a little less in the afternoon. You can program the pump to give less. And then when it's time to do your meal, you can push a button, you know, count up your carbs and push a button. It'll tell you, okay, give yourself 4.8 units or whatever, and then it can do that. And now they have it where they work with these sensors, the continuous monitors, and they do have some degree of smartness where they can you know, help adjust the insulins in little bits too. It's what we call a closed loop or getting closer to a closed loop, loop um, insulin thing, and this is where the advantage is. So you know, it's something that does take a lot of training. You have to learn how to count carbs. So it's not for everybody, um, but for those individuals who have maybe brittle diabetes where they're go high or low, they have trouble you know, getting it regulated, and certainly with a lot of our type 1 patients, it's, it's the best option out there. So you mentioned type 1 diabetes, but if there's a type 1, there's got to be a different type of diabetes. John, can you explain what type 2 diabetes is then and how it's different from type 1? Absolutely. So type 2 diabetes, we like to say, is a disease of insulin resistance your body just simply doesn't handle insulin in the proper fashion and you certainly need more of it in order to unlock the cells to, to get the glucose that they need in order to utilize for fuel. Um, type 2 diabetes is, is obviously the most common type of diabetes that we see. 90% uh, or so of patients in the United States will have type 2 diabetes. It oftentimes goes around with a, a number of other different uh, uh, set of, of issues. Oftentimes there's gonna be a strong family history of diabetes. There's gonna be a big genetic predisposition to it. Oftentimes things such as high cholesterol, uh, high blood pressure, uh, obesity, those things all kind of go hand in hand oftentimes with the development of type two diabetes. And uh, it, it's unfortunately a, a disease state that we've been seeing now growing um, uh, over the last two decades or so, uh, where it's really starting to reach a, a large number of people. Uh, the treatment is oftentimes a lot different than certainly it is with type 1 diabetes where, where the treatment is primarily going to be with insulin. Uh, with type 2 diabetes, we'll utilize a number of different things. The cornerstone continues to be uh, diet and exercise or what we call lifestyle modifications uh, for those patients with type 2 diabetes. But then we'll start our, our new medications and, and I think uh, what Richard was talking about earlier, you know, I may be a little younger than Richard, but um, since uh, 2009, since I've been doing this, and we didn't have a whole lot more, honestly, in 2009 to manage diabetes uh, prior to, um, uh, to me starting. And, and now we've got all these new agents, um, agents that are safer, uh, they're more effective. Uh, we're seeing lower A1Cs and blood glucose lowering. They come at the expense, or the, I should say the benefit of weight loss. And now we're starting to see that these drugs are also uh, beneficial as far as things as reducing uh, the risk of heart failure, the risk of kidney disease, uh, reducing the risk of cardiovascular to death, all of those things that we really worry about in our patients with type 2 diabetes. Um, so it's an incredibly um, uh, exciting time because we really now have great options, much more so than we did even a decade ago 
that are really helping our patients uh, manage their diabetes in a more effective, safe, and, um, and hopefully long-term uh, uh, benefit. So I think maybe we should back up, or I'm starting from the assumption that people are familiar with diabetes, and I think most people have heard about diabetes or seen ads on TV, but, but Rich, give me a, a 60 second introduction. What is diabetes? So diabetes, um, diabetes mellitus, which is sweet diabetes, is where it's a disorder of metabolism and you end up having hyperglycemia, high blood sugar. And so we talked a little about type 1, which is autoimmune. We talked about type 2, where there's insulin resistance and the body can't handle it. And you, you get, you have all these different defects that can lead to elevated blood sugar. And when you have elevated blood sugar, it will make you urinate more often, you have to, you get thirsty, and, and when it's sweet, that's like mellitus, you know, I think from the Latin for honey or whatever, it's sweet diabetes. Sometimes my patients will say sugar diabetes. Sugar diabetes, right, uh-huh, yeah. right. And, and John, real briefly, what is insulin? Why is insulin important? What does insulin well, do? Insulin Insulin is important because it is really the, the, the key that unlocks the door to get the, the, the glucose into the cells. Uh, when I talk to my patients about the, what happens when their blood sugars get too high and the insulin simply doesn't work, you're not able to use the preferred uh, method of metabolism. We need to fuel our brain, we need to fuel our muscles, we need to fuel our nerves, and all of that comes through glucose. If you don't have insulin or you have resistance to insulin and you're not able to unlock that door, to get the glucose out of the blood vessels into the cells, that's not optimal for, for healthy living. And as a result of that, you have to use other things such as fats and proteins, all of which are less efficient. So you really need the insulin to get the glucose or the fuel for, for running the human body uh, to the right location. So it's really fundamental to life. Blood sugar really and insulin are fundamental to life. We have a caller who called in and says, what is pre-diabetes and how do I know I have it? Rich. Okay, well, prediabetes is sometimes a term that will also mean impaired glucose tolerance or impaired fasting glucose, and it's sort of where you have elevated blood sugar. And so if we assume that normal, you know, giving values like 99 or less, if you're 100 to like 125, you know, so sort of that, that elevated fasting glucose, but not overtly diabetic, or a hemoglobin A1C, which is, well, I want you, you haven't, I don't know if people answer the question, but it's, yeah. a, it's a three month <laughs> average, you know, not three day, but three month <laughs> average test. Um, if that level is, let's say 6.4 or less, but above normal. So it's something that's kind of on the spectrum or, or the continuum of diabetes. And so even though maybe you're not overtly diabetic, there still are those risks, like John talked about hypertension, you know, um, heart disease, high cholesterol. These things go hand in hand with high, high, high blood sugars with pre-diabetes and, and, and eventually type 2 diabetes. And so I think we have to treat our patients who are even pre-diabetic. Sometimes we'll, you know, we always start with diet and exercise, but sometimes we'll use medications like metformin or you know, that's typically what we'll use, but we, we sometimes need to use that for your pre-diabetic, not just for the diabetic. So you can't say, well, I'm one point below being diabetic, so I'm okay. You gotta still treat it seriously. I like to tell my patient, you may not be on the diabetes train yet, but you're in the station. Right, right. You're waiting to get on that train. Well we said. Wanna, we wanna get you off of that train and out of that station so we know you're at higher risk right. to develop diabetes. And so we wanna try to interfere with that. Yeah. Living with diabetes looks different for everyone. For Stacy Horst, 
who works for Girl Scouts, cookies are a big part of her life. She spoke with Prairie Doc reporter Tori Burnt about her journey with type 2 diabetes. I have type 2 diabetes, and honestly, it's a pain in the butt. <laughs> uh, really, I have to get up in the morning. The first thing I do when I get up in the morning is I take my blood sugar. So, and I have a kit, I brought it so I could show it. So I have this little kit and this tells me what my blood sugar is. And there's a strip in here that gets in there. And then there's, and here's the unfart, unfun part. I have to poke myself with a needle to get a drop of blood every morning. So I do that every morning and I kind of get, I kind of monitor my blood to see if it's really high or if it's low or if it's just right. And then I take my medicine in the morning. So I take, I'm on metformin, and I take some other high blood pressure medicine and some statins, all stuff that's related to diabetes. And then I have to take my insulin. So I take insulin in a pen. So this is my pen and I put the needle on and then you have to do it in your stomach. You go through a lot. That is a lot more than anybody, any person who doesn't have diabetes has to go through. So how did you adjust to that? How did your family also adjust to the different lifestyle that you had to start and start taking on? Well, I have a great family. So my husband and my daughter are incredible. I love them to death and they're really supportive, of course. Um, they're paying me to say that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, you know, the big thing is, and it's managing it, right? So I haven't been managing it well for the past couple of years, especially pandemic hit. And oh my gosh, I put 10 pounds on in a year. And all of a sudden I realized my blood sugars were 225, 200. And that's just, I mean, that's crazy levels for blood sugars. So January 1st, not to be the typical, you know, New Year's resolution, but I set a date for me because they say set a date when you're going to do something. And that just happened to be the day. And I decided I was going to make changes. And so I'm making them. I've got gotten into a program. I'm watching what I eat. I log my foods and I decided instead of like this big, harsh diet, I'm just changing what I do by small steps and taking care of it. And it, I've dropped 12 pounds in the last six weeks. So I'm not trying to lose 10 pounds in 10 days or anything like that. You know, I figure one to two pounds a week, if I take it slow, that's fine. And if I blow it, I'm not telling myself, oh, that's horrible, I can't do this. You know, it's like, okay, and move on. And so I'm changing my attitude and my family is supporting and we're all meal prepping, <laughs> we're all meal planning. So that's how my family supports. They they help. They kind of, you know, and they'll remind me, did you take your meds this morning? So before where I might have eaten like French bread and had, you know, a bunch of French bread with butter. Now I buy the um, the 100 calorie light bread when I make toast or I, you know, it's so it's it's small changes, portion control, because you don't want to be hungry. Right. That's not fun. So I can load up on Italian chicken or teriyaki chicken with tons of vegetables in it. I'm still getting all the flavor and everything, but I'm not getting so much of the fat. So, and I still eat beef and pork and everything else. I just, and you can't, that's the thing. You can't just cut stuff out of your diet because then you feel deprived. And then it's like, well, forget this. I don't want to live like this for my rest of my life. You know, and who wants to not be able to have ice cream once in a while? 
one of the things that Stacy said that really kind of resonated with me was just how changing that lifestyle is important and those those lifestyle modification I think you both had had mentioned that a little bit earlier about that being such a bedrock in managing type 2 diabetes so here's a good question for you both how perfect do I have to be can I have a Girl Scout cookie? It's Girl Scout cookie season. I really want a Girl Scout cookie. So if I'm a diabetic, are Girl Scout cookies off the table for me forever? John, can I have a Girl Scout cookie if I'm diabetic? Absolutely. You know, that's one of the things that I think is one of the biggest misconceptions about diabetes. And, you know, when I talk with patients, it, um, you know, they always have this sense that they do have to be perfect. And I sometimes get you know irritated when others maybe cast judgment on my patients with diabetes about the things that they are eating. We're all human, you know, and and to be human is to in, is to enjoy life, and 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 a big part of that is being with friends. It's it's going out to dinner. It's enjoying the finer things, um, and if that's a Girl Scout cookie, you know, whatever it is. What I talk to patients all the time is it's all about moderation, and you want to make the right choice more times than not. But it's okay to make the wrong choice occasionally so long as you do it in moderation. And I think some of the, the best success stories I've had with patients as far as long-term success of keeping weight off and managing things with their diabetes are those that do have the occasional indiscretion. You know, that is part of living. It makes things fresh. It keeps things, um, you, you feel like you're not going without. And, and you know, the, the thing I, I always go back to with diabetes with my patients is it's a disease that doesn't take a day off and, and you have to deal with it every day you're not going to be perfect. And if you are striving for perfection, you're going to fail. But I think the more that you can, um, you know, accept the fact that you can deviate sometimes as long as it's in moderation, by all means, you should. You got to live. And you got to try again tomorrow. You know, you, exactly. the last thing you want to do is say, well, I've blown it. Forget it. I failed. Right. Right. I, I am just going to give up because there's always tomorrow. Diabetes will be there tomorrow. You'll be there tomorrow. We can all try again. So what other lifestyle factor is really important, Rich? I think exercise is an important part. You know, again, I agree wholeheartedly with John. It's like things in moderation, you know, everything in moderation. But I think exercise is the important part. And, you know, we always say strive to get some exercise. I always try to say aim for maybe 30 minutes a day, five days a week as your ultimate goal of some sort of moderate you know, aerobic type exercise. And whether you get your little QB device and you do your steps or a stationary bike or a, a, a new step or elliptical, um, you know, and even if you can't do that, walk your dog, you know, I mean, again, baby steps. If you're not in good shape, don't feel like you have to go out and, you know, kill yourself in the first, you know, 30 minutes, you know, start five minutes and, and make it a goal, but do that. And then maybe some, you know, uh, weights or resistance, if you can do that type of thing too. But just, even if that's too much, maybe you have arthritis, and it's too difficult, think, how can I move? You know, keep moving. You know, that, that's an important part for diabetes management as well. I think of, you know, diabetes management of keeping my sugars where they're supposed to be as a three-legged stool. We talked about that a little earlier. You've got diet, you've got exercise, you've got medication, but you need all three to keep things In balance, balanced right. where they're supposed to be. So, if I'm diagnosed with diabetes, do I have it forever? Is there, is there a way that I can become non-diabetic again, John? Well, we, we certainly, um, we, we, we have this conversation a lot with patients and it, it kind of depends on where your philosophy is. Um, 
you know, I've had a, a multitude of patients who have been diagnosed with diabetes who have really worked on that most important leg of that three-legged stool, the, the diet and exercise standpoint, and, and, and really worked towards weight reduction. And I have had patients that have gone back to normal uh, as far as their, their blood sugars are concerned. So, you know, in theory, those patients may not have diabetes anymore. There's certainly people we want to keep a close eye on, though, because we do know that um, in the future, there's going to be a risk that they could develop it again. You know, when you become diagnosed with diabetes, you've already lost about 50 to 80% of your body's ability to make insulin. And, and that really doesn't come back. Um, so being a, very aggressive with diet and exercise, maybe starting medications initially, you can see some significant improvements with time to maybe where your blood sugars are now in that range where you're not diabetic anymore. But we still wanna make sure you just don't ignore it and forget about it because it does have a tendency to come back with time. Um, the other thing where we're seeing uh, maybe a revolution in, in technologies where I have seen a lot of patients, you know, quote unquote, reverse their diabetes or no longer have diabetes uh, going forward based on their blood glucose levels are those folks that have had weight loss surgery or gastric bypass. Um, that's been a huge player as far as patients getting their diabetes under control um, and, and really not requiring the medical therapeutics and having more normal levels. So um, it's something that you can certainly strive for, but I tell patients all the time, don't be disappointed if you can't do it. You've already are behind the eight ball with the diagnosis. We just need to make sure we get all three of those legs in place so we can manage your diabetes well so you don't develop the complications. And as long as you're working on diet and exercise, you're checking your blood sugars, your glucose levels are where they need to be, we're managing your blood pressure, your cholesterol, this is a disease that you're gonna do fine with. Rich, tell me about some of those complications. Why, why do we care? Why do we care what our blood sugars are? Well, you know, the hope is, is that we want to live a long life. And I sometimes say, you know, with diabetes, it's not like you've got that ugly, itchy rash where you're going to get to the dermatologist right away because it's external. You don't like the way it looks. You don't like the way it feels. In, in the case of diabetes, it could be inter it's internal and you don't necessarily feel anything. Yeah, if you have super high sugars, you might feel more thirsty, urination, blur vision. But a lot of people say, why do I care? My sugar's 200, my A1C nine but I feel fine but internally it's it's like rust it's 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 damaging your internal organs and so over time that could lead to um, heart disease you know heart attacks stroke you know um, uh, eye damage you know blindness you know kidney failures there's other things and you want to get on top of it early on as best you can and if you you know like I say if life gets in your way and you 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 fall back and you kind of get off the wagon for a while you can get back on it you know just but, but studies have shown that better control does prevent those complications and now with these newer medicines as John said we're starting to see some kidney benefits, some reduction in heart failure, reduction in heart-related events. And so, you know, between diet and exercise and newer medications, you, can, you should be able to live a long, healthy, happy life. A caller from Howard asks, what are the needle, are, are the needleless glucose monitors accurate? Are they expensive? And does insurance cover them? John, what's your experience, Ben? So I would say the continuous glucose monitoring, you know, like we talked about earlier, is, is really revolutionizing diabetes. Um, it's such a more convenient way of, of monitoring things. The alert systems, for those not familiar with them, you can look at your phone or the receiver that they come with, and it'll tell you exactly what your blood sugar is in real time. You don't have to go through the, the, the rigmarole of testing your blood sugar, kind of like our patient talked about earlier, and, 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 and that challenge. 
Um, as far as the accuracy goes, they are extraordinarily accurate, and in some cases, maybe even more accurate than the glucometers that we have right now. Um, the FDA does uh, regulate this uh, uh, very carefully, and then there's a percentage uh, that you have to meet as far as the accuracy is concerned. And they are very competitive, if not maybe even better than a lot of the glucometers that are on the market. So, you know, we, we really utilize continuous glucose monitors or the personal sensors in our clinic. Um, as far as the, the coverage goes and the ability to get them, uh, I would certainly applaud Medicare. Uh, they have been uh, really at the forefront of this, of getting patients on these, uh, on these, uh, on these devices. And, and oftentimes these are older patients where we really do worry about hypoglycemia more uh, than anyone. Um, and, and so it has been very well covered with the insurance companies. It's still variable. Um, you know, most of our patients are type two and we're getting a lot of the patients with type two diabetes on the sensors. Uh, type ones, it's been a little bit easier to get, but um, I, I think we're gonna see it, I think in the future, uh, four to five years from now, I think glucometers are gonna be a thing of the past. And I think we're going to have more and more patients on these sensors simply because they're more accurate, they're more user-friendly. Uh, we see reduction in hypoglycemic events. And I always tell my patients in clinic, I'm selfish. You know, I, I want you to come with the most data you possibly can bring so I can help you. When you bring these reports with these sensors, I can just have a treasure trove of data that I can go through to really assess what's happening overnight, what's happening after your meals. How do I make adjustments to maximize our, our glycemic lowering, you're getting your blood sugars to goal but doing so in a way where we can really help fight against hypoglycemia or low blood sugars. So, you know, to me, it's the future. I think the insurance companies are coming around. Certainly Medicare has, and, and I've talked to your doctor about it. If it's something you're interested in, um, you know, we can go through those uh, hoops to try to get those approved for you. I, it's totally worth it uh, from my end. And I certainly, you'll find, you'll find it from uh, the patient's end as well. Knowledge is power. There's a lot to learn when it comes to diabetes but luckily there are specialists available to provide education. Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt spoke with a certified diabetes educator about the services they offer. I get referrals from providers within the clinic and sometimes from outside of the clinic and we set them up, schedule them to come in and then we kind of do an assessment to see where they're at with their diabetes and what they know and then we tailor our teaching according to that. And, you know, if it's somebody new to diabetes, we, we have the whole thing of just what it is and all the effects it can have in the body and what we do to treat it. And it's mostly, we call it diabetes self-management education because really what we're doing is teaching the skills for them to take good care of themselves with diabetes at home. Most of our clients are have type 2 diabetes, but we do have some with type 1, and then we have a fair number of the gestational diabetes, so the women that have trouble with blood sugars in their pregnancies. And then we, we do some pre-diabetes education also, trying to help them turn it around at that point and slow down the progression to type 2. It's important because most of how patients are going to do with their diabetes depends on their own self-care. And so when we try to give them the skills to take good care of themselves, be it especially diet and exercise and their lifestyle. And if they're on medication, to understand how that works. And, and then we're also a resource if they have questions or if they're needing some help with medication adjustment. At what point should someone come and see you or be referred to you? 
they should be referred to us with a new diagnosis or if um, they can even come annually and especially if they're not meeting their targets is a good time to be referred back to us to see what adjustments could be made to help them get their blood sugar under better control or they might come if they have some change in their status or if they're starting a new medication like if they're starting the insulin we'll we'll teach them how to do that and then there's another class of medications that is an injectable so we'll teach them how to do that too what are some maybe signs and symptoms to where someone should maybe consider um, looking forward to your services well some of this signs of high blood sugar that tend tend to bring somebody into their doctor are like if as those blood sugars are high they can be really thirsty and then go into the bathroom a lot some people notice changes in their vision some people are just really tired and not having much energy and not feeling well those kind of things and also weight loss is a big one unintended weight loss We've had some really good questions coming in, so we're gonna get, some, get to a few more of these questions. Um, a woman from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, would like to know if someone is morbidly obese, are they automatically pre-diabetic? Rich, what's your take on that? Actually, I would say they're not, you know. Um, so morbid obesity, we have something called a body mass index, and so it's the number is 40. And, you know, there are individuals who are who are morbidly obese who are not always pre-diabetic. Um, they've got enough insulin capacity still in their pancreas, and they, they have done okay. But, you know, that type of obesity is a risk factor for perhaps becoming pre-diabetic and you know for getting overt diabetes so certainly among other things working on weight loss would be important but there are other genetic factors as, as dr palmer said you know it's also uh, family history um, other things that might play roles but obesity is important but it's not the only thing it's definitely something where as a primary care doctor if somebody's overweight i'm going to try to remember to check their blood sugar as a screening test a little more often right. just like i might do your mammogram if you're female or your prostate cancer check if you're male we something to watch we had some good questions about medications let's look at some of these I have a 65 year old gentleman from Rapid City who has type 2 diabetes and things are pretty well controlled he is on Genuvia and he recently found out that this prescription alone was going to cost him over $500 a month is there an alternative to Genuvia or perhaps a generic option? Rich. Oh, you want me to take it? Yeah, okay, all right. All right. Um, right. So, so first of all, after diet and exercise, usually metformin is something we think of, and that's typically a four-dollar generic. And so, um, I assume that this patient maybe had tried metformin. Diarrhea is a common side effect. Some people can't tolerate it. And so, uh, Genuvia, which is what's called a DPP-4, is sort of a second-line therapy, very well tolerated. Um, it, it doesn't tend to cause weight gain or hypoglycemia, but it is very expensive. And so, you know, th for this patient, I might say, well one option would be 
Um, something that we like better, these, these GLP-1 receptor agonists, you've heard of Ozempic or Trulicity or things like that. They're not cheap either though, unfortunately, but they're a once weekly injection. There's a daily one, an oral one called Rebelsis, which is like Ozempic that can lead to weight loss and have great results, but much better results in Genuvia as far as um, lowering blood sugars. But another option would be these um, SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, you've heard of um, Invokana or Jardiance or Farsiga. These also um, lead to weight reduction, have you know, effects on um, um, better blood sugar and maybe some heart and you know, kidney benefits as well too. Again, perhaps more expensive. So sometimes when cost is really an issue, we go back to that old medicine I said they had when I was back in my early training, sulfonylurea, glimipiride or glipizide. Not our preferred one because it can have weight gain or hypoglycemia, but it's $4. And so some patients, that's the one we choose. Yeah, it's it's hard when the best medicines are often the most expensive ones, with, right, with the right. exception of that metformin, which is not very expensive. But there are some questions about the metformin here. Um, what are the advantages and disadvantages of metformin? John, can you address that one? Well, metformin is has been the cornerstone of diabetes management, you know, now in the United States since the mid '90s. You know, to Rich's point earlier, you know, the fact that it's uh, an affordable medication is, is one of the, uh, I think, one of the biggest uh, hallmarks of why it's the, the cornerstone of our, our first agents that we use uh, once patients need medical therapy. Metformin is incredibly safe. Uh, you, you see that it uh, has a very good reduction in blood glucose values, minimal risk of hypoglycemia, uh, low blood sugars. Uh, you see a little bit of weight loss. Uh, and it, it has, it's tried and true. We've got uh, you know, several decades now of data that shows that it's well. Uh, there's been several studies that have shown it may increase longevity. There's been some studies that have looked at it in, in association with uh, cancers and reducing that risk of cancer. Uh, so it really is an incredibly well-afforded, very effective medication. Um, some of the side effects sometimes that patients will experience is, is nausea. Uh, sometimes diarrhea is a common one that we see. Uh, those are side effects that will occur and, and some people just simply can't tolerate it. Uh, oftentimes, if you work with your doctor though, to have a lower dose initially when it started, making certain that it's the extended release formulation, that will oftentimes significantly improve that tolerability aspect of things. Um, you might've heard some uh, issues recently that have come up too with, with metformin. Uh, there's a lot of um, um, half-truths and, and just frankly things that aren't correct about it, but they kind of get perpetuated amongst patients or even amongst providers uh, and, and certainly online. Um, there was an issue recently as far as uh, cancer risk associated with metformin. Uh, that wasn't the medication itself. That was just some of the, 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 uh, the other ingredients that are necessary in order to make the tablets. And some of those had very low levels of carcinogens in them. And so some manufacturers had to pull them back off the, uh, from the market. Uh, that's not an issue with metformin, the molecule itself. That again was the additive to make pills. That's being rectified. And so I would certainly not want patients to come off metformin if they have a worry about cancer with it as well, because that's, that's been a common thing. Uh, the other thing that I hear a lot from patients about metformin is it's going to kill my kidneys. Uh, metformin doesn't cause problems with your kidneys. We do have to make adjustments sometimes in the dosing, and, and sometimes we have to stop the, uh, the medication if you do have associated kidney disease and your kidneys just simply don't function as well as they used to. 
but metformin in and of itself does not pose harm to your kidneys as well. And it's incredibly effective drug, incredibly affordable. And we wanna make sure that we, we try all of our patients on it initially, uh, simply because of all the benefits that it brings to the table. It's hard to pass up a $4 drug that does all that, for sure. We did have another question about uh, metformin. I think this will be a quick one to answer. A woman from Mobridge has trouble going to the bathroom all night long, and she's on metformin. Rich, does metformin do that? Well, it depends. If she's talking about like diarrhea, that could be a potential side effect. And again, using the extended release, I think starting at lower doses, um, having it with sometimes with food, their strategies. And you know, maybe in her case, she might just take a morning dose and tolerate that better. If it's something that doesn't go away, that might be a, a cause or reason to try something, something else. else. Yeah. And if it's if she's up all night urinating, that's probably a different issue. Right, and that might be that the sugars aren't well controlled and maybe she needs something beyond the metformin. Yes. Um, a woman from Pine Ridge says her blood sugars will spike but then drop really low with exercise. She takes her medicines as directed but is wondering if there is anything she could add to her diet to help stabilize these dramatic changes. Rich, I'm going to give that one to you since the last question was really quick. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, right, and so it might depend also what her um, other treatment is for her diabetes. Um, you know, if she's on insulin, for example, or if she's on something like uh, glipizide or glimpiride, certain medicines are more likely to cause drops in sugar. But that's a common problem, and oftentimes we say try to do more mixed meal uh, type type foods, you know, so a little bit more fat, a little bit more protein, maybe not as many carbs, but again, it may be a problem with the medication. So speak with your doctor about the medication, tell them about what you're experiencing, and maybe, maybe there has to be adjustments in what insulin, for example, that you're taking. Uh, here's a gentleman from Sioux Falls who has type 2 diabetes and has had it since he was 60 and he's now approaching 80. He has some trouble controlling his sugars and his morning sugars range from 76 to 205 no matter what he eats. How critical is this, John? Well, we always talk about diabetes as uh, we have these algorithms for management. We have these guidelines for where we want our patients to, to be at. And we kind of have this, um, this, this theory in mind as how, how patients should be treated as, as a general population. When it comes down to it, though, every patient is, is an N of one and has their own uniqueness. In a gentleman like this, um, you know, we do see that variability um, in, in glucose levels. That's a common thing we see. It's frustrating for patients. I, I try to remind them that we're always looking at the bigger picture and, and really not to, to focus just on one individual value uh, at one time because that will make you crazy managing your diabetes. Um, I would want to know what medications you're on. Um, you know, if you're on insulin, uh, that can certainly lead to some variability depending on where your blood sugars are at night. Uh, this would be a person that if it is really causing them some concern, if they were coming to see me in clinic, I would put them on a continuous glucose monitor. Well, we have these devices in our clinics. You know, we've talked about them uh, previously as far as the, what patients are using for their own personal use but I'll put a person on, on, a, on a continuous glucose monitor what will record their blood sugar for seven straight days. That will really unlock a lot of the trends and patterns to see why this is happening. You know, then I can sit down and go over the patterns with the patient and say, hey, what are you doing at five o'clock when your blood sugar's spiking? Or what's happening in the middle of the night when your blood sugar is maybe trending down to 70? 
What was your activity the day before? What were you eating the day before? Uh, so we can really try to help with some of that variability. But at the end of the day, you know, my, 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 my uh, advice to patients like this is we're looking at the overall global management of your diabetes. Don't worry about every individual value. Make certain that your A1C is in a good range. You're not having hypoglycemia values less than 70. I think you're probably going to be in a good place with that, that, that distance or that time that you've had diabetes and that overall range that you're, you're giving us. A caller also from Sioux Falls talking about the continuous monitor says it was not uncommon for her continuous glucose monitor to read more than 40 points lower than what she would record with her finger stick. She decided to stop using it for these reasons, but was wondering if you could comment on whether this was a rare occurrence or if you've heard of others with similar issues. Rich, what's your experience been? Well, well as John said earlier, these monitors are felt to be very accurate, but there is gonna be some discrepancy and sometimes it's the type of meter or a different brand, you know, and the question is, is which one is more, indeed more accurate. Um, Sometimes certain um, uh, monitors or continuous sensors may interact with other um, substances. For example, there's one called the Freestyle Libre, which I'm, patients may have seen commercials on. And that one, if you use like high doses of vitamin C, it may affect the values. Um, Tylenol um, with the older Dexcom monitors may be an issue. And so there might be some factor with there. I, and again, I, I would say don't get hung up too much on the values, but kind of pick which one you're going to use and use that as your guide and, and, and kind of go from there. And so it would not, in my mind, be a reason not to use the monitor because again, you've got alerts with that. It allows you to get much more data. We as endocrinologists love to get that data when we see our patients because we can help make much more um, you know, informed decisions how to best tailor their medications. And so I would say, okay, there's a difference, but don't give up the monitor. monitor. One, we've got time for one more really quick answer here. A man from Sioux Falls is wondering, when a nurse checks your blood pressure when you go to the doctors, why don't they check your blood sugar at that time too? John, what's your thought on that? Well, it depends on what clinic you're at. Um, I know a lot of the endocrinology clinics will check your blood sugar at the same time as your blood pressure. Um, you know, I, I think that just comes to the, uh, to the, the the preference of the, the individual clinics, but uh, that's not a bad idea, you know, for screening purposes. I think that gentleman might be onto something. Yeah. I think a lot of my patients would stop seeing me if they knew they were gonna get their <laughs> finger pricked every time they came in to see me. And it's also a, a single number. You know, there's a lot of things that can affect a single number. We wanna look at that pattern. And now for the answer to tonight's Prairie Doc quiz question, which was already spilled for us, but that's okay. Sorry. <laughs> a hemoglobin A1C level measures the average blood sugar level over a three-day period. True or false? And the answer is false. It measures the average blood glucose or blood sugar level over the past three months. Doctors may use the A1C alone or in combination with other diabetes tests to make the diagnosis. The winner of tonight's quiz is Marsha Simonsma from Del Rapids. Thank you, Marsha, for participating. A book will be in the mail soon. And we'll be right back after this. 
Have you heard? The Prairie Doc has a podcast. Listen to Prairie Doc Radio and On Call with the Prairie Doc wherever you get your podcasts. These programs feature physicians and other health professionals discussing various medical topics important to you and your family. Look for Prairie Doc on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. The Prairie Doc Podcast. Stay healthy out there, people. I've learned a lot from my patients over the years. Sometimes the lessons are learned as I walk beside them through struggles both medical and non-medical. Sometimes the lessons are explicitly stated, words of wisdom that stick with me through the years and change the way I understand illness or life in general. The first such lesson I remember was from a middle-aged woman who had been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes only a few years prior. She came to me with blood sugars that ran critically low in the middle of the night, but sky high during the day. The situation had only worsened when she tried to adjust her insulin. Back in those days, our tools for managing diabetes were far more limited and our insulin regimens far more rigid. After we adjusted her dosing so that the peaks and valleys of her insulin effect were a better fit for her life, we started fine-tuning the control of her blood sugar. We needed to balance her insulin with her activity with her food. This is when she said to me, diabetes is the original do-it-yourself disease. The truth of this statement resonated with me then, and I still hear her words almost every time I see a person with diabetes 20 years later. The stakes are high. Control of blood sugar is directly correlated with the odds of developing one of the terrible complications of diabetes, such as blindness, strokes, heart attacks, kidney failure, amputations, nerve damage. That control rests in part with our medicines, but the real challenge of diabetes lies in the fact that success depends on changing habits, and that is hard indeed. People with diabetes are asked to change the way they eat, the way they move, the very way they live. They are often asked to monitor their blood sugars, which to date has meant pricking their fingers to take blood and to make decisions based on those results, sometimes multiple times a day, and then do it again tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. Additionally, diabetes medications and supplies are awfully expensive. There is some hope. New technologies are making it easier to handle the mechanics of managing diabetes, and new medicines are allowing more flexibility in lifestyle. But the burden of success still rests very much on the shoulders of the patient to balance medicines with activity, with food, and all the decisions he or she makes every day. Diabetes is no doubt the do-it-yourself disease. A 
big thank you to our guests, Richard and John, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about the treatment of diabetes. If you would like more information about this program or to see and hear more episodes of the program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. That does it for tonight. From all of us here on call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Vaccines are in the news every day. Deciding to be vaccinated is an important step. Vaccines are for everyone. Next time, on call with the Prairie Doc. Hello, I'm Dr. Tom Dean. I'm a member of the Board of Directors of the Healing Words Foundation, and I'd like to take a minute to ask for your help. I grew up on a farm west of Wessington Springs. After high school, I left the area and pursued medical education in New York, Seattle, and I even spent a year in England. When we completed our education, my wife, Kathy, a nurse midwife, and I returned to Wessington Springs, where we have lived and practiced for more than 40 years. Just like you, we love our hometown. For many years, I've been a, an advocate for small communities and for good access to healthcare in rural communities. Prairie Doc programs play a uniquely important role in helping rural populations maintain easy access to up-to-date healthcare knowledge. Rick and Joni Holm started this mission of providing healthcare information free of charge to all of us, especially to those who have limited access to healthcare professionals. Now it's up to us to help our four Prairie Docs and many others continue the legacy. I would urge you, as Kathy and I have done, to contribute to the Healing Words Foundation. Go to prairiedoc.org and make your contribution today. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Dock on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Dock as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, South Dakota Foundation for Medical Care, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Aberdeen District Medical Society, Urology Specialists, Orthopedic Institute, Physicians Care Sanford Clinic Community Service Committee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.